So today I want to talk about learning to enjoy God in a season of living holy. Because I think we have something in our mind where only the things that are wrong bring satisfaction. Like it's so wrong, yet it feels so right. It's so forbidden, yet I want to do it. Sometimes we find so much satisfaction in the wrong things. And even from a young age, we're taught, why do all the bad people have all the fun? Right? You hear songs written about it, like I don't want to go to heaven, all the boring people are there. That's the most ridiculous talk I've ever heard in my life. It's immature talk. It's not real. It's not reality. But I can understand because I'm a human being like you. I understand that talk. I remember the first time I did something wrong and it felt so right. I was five years old. And I'm sure I did stuff wrong before there, but I'm just trying to remember. I remember this one vividly. I was big on Sesame Street. You understand me? Back in my day in 1983, Big Bird was on his game. Sesame Street was the top show. I get in front of Sesame Street, and they, my number one guy, I couldn't wait to see pop out of that trash bucket, was Oscar the Grouch. I went bananas when Oscar the Grouch came out. I love Sesame Street. And I had a friend next door that one day said to me when I was five years old, and I remember I was five so foolishly because I was watching Sesame Street, and this might not make any sense to you, but it's in a five years old's mind. They showed everyone and how old they were, and they kind of put it in their chest. You know, they did that little skits. So if you five, six, or four. So I felt like I had a five living in my chest because of Sesame Street. So I remember I was five years old. I went over there, and he said, I got all the Sesame Street stuff. He had all of Sesame Street, all the characters. And I became jealous and envious, five years old. And I saw Oscar the Grouch sitting there over on Sesame Street. And I distracted him. Oscar went right in the pocket. (laughs) Right in my pocket. And I said, this dirt dog has all Sesame Street. He ain't going to miss Oscar the Grouch. And I went home next door. And I remember feeling this feeling like, that was so wrong. That's the first time I ever stole something. But man, did that feel good. Because now I had Oscar the Grouch. And through my life as I grew up, I learned. I became a thief. I would steal. I remember, remember Cabbage Patch Kids? Uh, the Garbage Pail Cards? I would steal packs. Like, I learned from that moment on, wow. I would steal Snickers bar. They just came out with a new, instead of the apple pies, they put chocolate in them. That was big in the 80s. I'd pocket those things like it was no thing. And I remember getting out of there, and it just made me feel so good. And that spread into different things in my life. And I'm sure many of you are identifying things in your life where you started to do things that were wrong. You started to do things that were wrong, and you said, this feels so right. Because our sinful nature, the Bible even teaches us, sin is fun for a season, but the end is destruction. What happens when the Holy Spirit comes inside of us is things start to change. When we put our faith in Jesus, start to follow Jesus, we still have that sinful nature in that flesh that does things, but I'm sure many of you can attest to this. They don't feel so good. They'll feel good for that moment, Like, I love this. This is so good. And then you're like, man, I feel so bad about what I did. Right? It's this constant condemnation where the flesh is like, I want to go back and do those wrong things that felt so right. But now I'm following Jesus. It's not bringing the same satisfaction. I remember this one dude I was preaching the gospel to him at work. I never stopped. And I was telling him, that's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that, this and that. He came into work today and said, stop preaching to me. You're messing up my life. 
You're messing up my life because things I used to enjoy, I'm not enjoying them anymore. Stop doing this. Stop messing up my life. But you're messing up your life in all the right ways. When the Holy Spirit is calling you to live holy, you will actually find deeper satisfaction in doing what is right. And that's why I want to reprogram you. Reprogram you through the power of the gospel right now. So your mind is not saying, you're taking everything away from me. The preacher's up there telling me I'm doing everything wrong. Jesus takes things out of our life so we can replace them with things that really bring us joy and really bring us satisfaction. See, the lie of this world and the lie of the enemy is try to hold on those things that are so destructive when God is trying to take those burdens away from you so you can live holy and actually enjoy living holy. Do you know how much more fun it is? Do you know how much more satisfying it is to do the right thing? You know how much more satisfying it is to live your life not for yourself first, but live your life for others? You will be miserable if you live your life for yourself. I swear to goodness, it will be fun at times, but you'll be like, man, this is, everyone told me this is going to be awesome. I'm so obsessed with myself, my life stinks. But then you start giving of yourself. You start giving of your time. You start loving your neighbor like you love yourself. You start being there for people and encouraging people and living holy and living right. Then you realize that's what life is all about. See, Jesus lived the most abundant life there was to live, but he lived it to lay his life down for others. So that's what I want us to really see today. When you live holy, you will enjoy love, life, so much more deeply. Listen, turn to, turn to Psalm 15. It's a short psalm, but it's, it's powerful. It says, O Lord, who can sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does, not, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So I want to give you some background because the context of every psalm is important. So Because when you talk about sojourning to a tent and dwell on the holy hill, once again, we hear these words and think, what the heck does that mean? And so we'll get into that. I want to just translate it a little for modern times for you. Is David is asking this huge question. Who can be in relationship with God? Who can approach God? Who can dwell with God? Isn't that the big question? Who can be in relationship with God? Who can know God? Who can honor God? Who can worship God? Who are his people? Well, how do they act? What does that look like? This is the big question. And the reason he says, and we're going to do some background here. I'm going to give you some Old Testament history 101. The reason he says, who can sojourn to your tent, is because since the days of Moses, and this was historical, and this was the only time it happened and started in human history. God commanded Moses, after the people were delivered out of the out of Egypt, the power of Egypt and slavery in Egypt, he commanded Moses to build a tabernacle, a meeting place where people could approach God. Now, this is the first time this has ever happened. You've got to understand how awesome this is. God very specifically said, Moses, I've chosen this people. Since Abraham, I've chosen you. I'm going to reveal who I am as the one and only God to you very unique way you guys will be able to approach me where other nations cannot approach me. 
I'm revealing myself to you, and I'm going to give you an actual place where you can meet and you can atone for your sins. It's called the tabernacle. It was actually like a mobile sanctuary, a mobile dwelling place. Tabernacle actually means dwelling place. It actually means sanctuary. It actually means we can get into a tent. It was an actual tent, and I want you to pay attention to me. Don't let John Copley throw you off. It was an actual tent that was, the walls were 45 by 15. It was portable. So anyway, when they were traveling, because they were going to the promised land, they dropped this meeting place to meet with God and to worship God. It was 45 by 15 high, made of wood, and inside where the joints were, you had gold. They'd throw some gold over there. On top of the tent, it was like a rug-like covering, and they're driving into the ground. Inside the tent, there were linens, fine linens, embroidered like angels and cherubim in there to signify the presence of God. And there was a veil in the tent that divided a holy place from the holy holies. Okay? Inside the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Does everyone know about the Ark of the Covenant? If you don't know, you're about to find out. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden chest. Inside the wooden chest, there were the Ten Commandments, the Hebrew Bible, the rod of Aaron, and a pot of manna. It was all things to remind people that God was with them. It was a visual, so people would look at it and remember that God was with them in a unique way. On top of this Ark, there were golden cherubim. That I'm talking, they beat it out of one piece. When you take a piece of gold that is one piece of gold and you beat angels out of it, you're taking things seriously. So they made this Ark of the Covenant in there that was the holy place. It was so holy that the high priest was only allowed to enter it once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's how holy this place was and how holy they understood God was in even approaching him. So outside the tent, there was an outer court that was about 150 feet by 75 feet. And I can't get into every detail because we don't have the time, but I'm going to give you a few things that will help you understand how the people approached God back then because it's important to the gospel and it's important to understanding how to approach God. The first thing is, there was only one way into the meeting place. There was one way into the meeting place. It was a gate that was about 30 feet wide. Now, this is extremely significant because even where they put the gate was the opposite of the way it was in the east. It was called the east gate. It was the opposite of where the sun worships in the pagan gods used to face themselves to worship. So God was making a statement. You're unique. You don't worship like other nations do. You don't worship many gods. You worship one God. There was one gate. And this is important for you guys to understand because God was showing us how to approach God. And when they asked Jesus, this will help you when Jesus came. Because what did Jesus say? He said, I am the way, I am truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. What he was making the statement of was, He was the only way to God, just like there was only one doorway into approaching me, God. Does that make sense to everyone? He also called himself, what? The door, the gate. He said, I am the gate. No one can even approach God or come to me unless they come through me. 
And that's so important because other religions will teach you, you can come in through the back or you can come in through the side or you, all these other ways. And Jesus says, there's no other way even to approach God unless it's through faith in me. And right when you got through that gate, there was another thing that was extremely important. There was an altar that was right there. There was an altar, and this altar was high. An altar, when you get back into the root word, actually means a high place. And they would mount, they would make a mound of dirt, and they would put this altar. It was called the brazen altar. That right when you came through that gate, there was, you had to make a sacrifice. The people of God knew you could not even approach God unless your sins were atoned for, unless your sins were paid for, unless there was repentance. They understood the seriousness of sin. And that's so huge in our culture because we don't call sin, sin anymore. It's mistakes. It's failures. It's I, had, I didn't get rest last night. Nothing's a sin. Everyone thinks God's casual and you can just approach him. No, we are sinners who sin. We are sinners who do wrong. We are sinners who like doing the forbidden. We're sinners who need grace and God made a way even back then that you don't approach God unless there's a sacrifice for your sins. Because he's that holy. He's that holy that he can't look upon sin and not judge it. He can't look upon sin and not execute justice. He's that pure. He's not like us where we go sinner to sinner and we talk. God is so holy. He can't even, Habakkuk 1.13, it says his eyes are so pure he can't even look on evil like that. So the people of God are learning you don't approach God. You approach him through one entrance and there's a sacrifice that made. Then the high priest showed up. You're not even allowed to go in to the holy of holies. The high priest has to go in. What is Jesus called? Our high priest. The high priest executes the sacrifice you, and takes blood from your sacrifice and he enters in to the holy place. That he's, even he is only allowed to go in once a year. And you see the veil there. He brings, he goes by the veil one time a year and he sprinkles blood on the Ark of the Covenant. They actually have a thing called the mercy seat that was above it, above it called the atonement cover. And he, the high priest went in and he prayed for the people of God. He interceded for the people of God and he atoned through the blood and through the sacrifices for the sins of the people. Then God was able to show favor to his people. Then, and only through that kind of meeting, that kind of approach, was God able to have relationship and be a God to these people because sin had to be dealt with. Does that help you understand the gospel better? What did you hear through all of that when people preached the gospel? There's only one way to God through Jesus Christ. He is the final sacrifice, so we don't have to be putting down lambs no more. Even when they sacrificed, it had to be a lamb without blemish who was a male. You couldn't bring any animal in there and sacrifice. It had to be unique. Jesus called the lamb of God who was sacrificed. Jesus is our high priest. He goes before God, and that's just the gospel all before there. So this is why David looks at the system that God has showed him that's patterned after heaven and patterned in how we should relate to God, and he says, who can sojourn into your tent? Who is worthy to be before God? Who is worthy to be in relationship with God? Who can even know him? Why? Because he understood that God was holy, therefore his people had to be holy like him. This is one of the Psalms where, you know, a lot of these prayers you hear David like, where are you, God? Or what's going on? And you don't hear an answer. 
In this psalm, God actually gives David an answer, if you look closely. He gives an answer to who can know him and who can be in relationship with him. And he gives a list of ten, and I want us to read through these right now. And you can paraphrase it like this. Those who live holy can dwell with me. So the first thing he says is, and I want us to listen to them and really analyze our heart as we go over these things. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. He who speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue. He who does no evil to his neighbor. He who doesn't take up reproach against his friend. He whose eyes a vile person is despised. He honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. Those are kind of the traits of a person that we see in the psalm that is in relationship with the holy God, is therefore acting holy. Of course, do you guys know in the Ten Commandments that 60, arguably 70% of the Ten Commandments have to do with how we treat each other? Like God came right away, and we need to hear this. And David understood this. That's why he doesn't address it much. If he was worshiping the one and only God, he understood that first and foremost, what does God say when he reveals himself? You shall have no other gods before me. He says you shall not make a graven image and worship it. Why? Because God is a jealous God. Number three, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And fourth, you can argue because he talks about the Sabbath, um, if that was for God, but Jesus said really the Sabbath is for man, so it could be 60, uh, you know, 30 to 40 percent. But then what? You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't steal off of the grouch. You shouldn't do those things, right? You shouldn't murder. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife or your, any other person's things. And he goes on and on, honor your mother and father. It's all how we treat each other. And I want you guys to hear this. How you treat other people is a mark of living holy. Now, I don't want to belittle the fact that living holy is worshiping God and honoring God. But let's just take that, that that's already been said and we understand that. And just break down the context of this psalm. How we treat other people decides whether we're living holy or not. This is important because people understand holiness. How are you going to be holy? I'm going to go in a cave. I'm going to get some noodle soup. And I'm going to smoke a pipe by myself for the next 10 years. Real holy. Kind of Gandalf style. I'm just, I'm real holy. How can you be holy when you're not dealing with anyone? How can you be holy when you're not tested to love your enemy? How can we be holy when there's no poor people to give? You can't be holy when you're by yourself. I understand you might have holy times of prayer with God, but anyone that goes to an island can live holy because they're never tested. Because that's not definition of holy. The definition of holy is come to this broken world where we're all messed up. We're all sinners. We wake up selfish. Everything's wrong with the world from the time we wake up. I'm mad at myself. I'm mad at you. Then love people. Then care for people. That's the definition of holiness. You know, because sometimes we think that our actions don't affect people. Like God gives these rules. Like when he gave the Ten Commandments, it was so society and culture and the nation of Israel would function in a holy way. Because when we don't act holy, it affects other people. It affects other people. I remember was I was in, when I was in third or fourth grade. Does everyone remember when they call you into the auditorium and they say, don't pull the fire alarm? That was one of the major things you didn't do. Like, don't pull the fire alarm. 
But this is one brother named Paul Brown. He was that dude who was like three years ahead of everyone in puberty. With like fourth grade, he had a beard just walking around. And he thought it was cool to pull the fire alarm because of the praise he would get, because of the accolades he would get. Because we were just in awe. When you're in third or fourth grade, someone pulls the fire alarm, you just, there's that dude. He didn't care. He wasn't scared. And he'd pull that fire alarm, and he was the fastest dude in class, and he'd run away, and it would take time. They'd get the dye on his hands. They finally got him. When he pulled that fire alarm, they put the light on, and they got him. Paul Brown was thinking of himself. He was thinking, that rule is there. They're trying to keep me from having fun. Because they don't understand, when I pull that fire alarm, I become the top fourth grader. You know, I am worshipped. In his mind, that rule was made for him not to have fun. What he didn't realize was the people he affected when he wasn't acting holy. He didn't realize all the firemen sliding down the pole thinking they might have to go save elementary school kids from a fire. He didn't think about all the teachers. Oh, man, here we go. Like, thinking they're responsible for all these kids to get them out. They didn't think about the parents before Twitter. I didn't care if there's a fire alarm. Somehow, without Twitter, parents find out there's been a fire alarm at the school. They didn't think about the parents. Are my kids all right? They didn't think of people could get hurt running out of there. They didn't think about the kids who maybe thought there was a fire and they got anxiety. He didn't realize that his actions of not following the rules, not following the commandments of the school, were affecting everyone else. So I want you guys to hear this. When we don't live holy, it affects other people's lives. And I want you to hear this first example of ways when people don't live holy. Then we'll talk about how when we do live holy, the joy and the fruit it brings. Was anyone shocked to hear in in this land of greed when they said, don't lend out your money at interest? Did that catch you? When you're off that chapter, like, what's up, man? I'm a good investor. We're greedy. We have a problem with greed in this nation. And the fact that, and I'm not being political here, but the fact that most bankers lend stuff out at a high interest, right? Do you think that their greed has not hurt us as a nation? In their mind, it's I'm savvy. In their mind, those people don't know what I'm doing. I'm making more money. They're giving me this. I'm making double that. Boom, boom, greed, 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 greed. Poverty, poverty, brokenness. People can't pay their loans. We have restrictions and depressions and people losing their house because they're not being holy and that affects people. Do you hear that? And I want to talk about us as a culture. We're greedy. We love things instead of people. And we need to start loving people and being holy. The second thing, how about slandering with the tongue? For some reason, and I want us to really take account here and repent if we need be, For some reason, we think it's okay to slander on social media. And we think for some reason, celebrity and politicians aren't real people because we don't know them. When did that happen? They don't have families? They don't read it? They don't have children? It's not okay for you to slander the president of the United States on social media. You heard that from your pastor. Stop it. There's very clear stuff in the Bible. It says to honor your leader. God was honoring Caesar. You know how corrupt Caesar was? You know how corrupt the people in the Bible had to honor their leaders? Far more corrupt than you ever think our leaders could be. Stop slandering those things. It's unholy. It hurts them. It hurts our family. It hurts our culture. And it sets a bad example. Stop Stop, Stop slandering the Kardashians. Stop it. Those are people. No matter. You're watching and slandering. Stop both. 
those are real. Those are real people, and it's unholy to slander. It doesn't matter if a certain amount of Twitter followers. They are people. And words, when used in that way, are unholy, and they hurt people. And then they said, it says in the Scripture, to despise a vile person, and we'll get into that. Don't we sometimes attempt to do the opposite? We see people who are living according to the world for lust and power and accolades, and we envy them. We envy them. We say, man, they got everything. We should despise that kind of living because they're not living in the fear of the Lord. And when we don't despise that kind of living, we create a demand and a hunger for that kind of living. Now let's get to, let's switch all those things around to how we should be living and I'm sure many of you are already living like that. But I want us to take an examination today to see if we are living holy and run to the cross and run to grace if we're not. What if you give your money away? Not only for no interest, but you don't even want it back. What did Jesus say? Lend, expecting nothing in return. Someone asks you for a shirt, Give him your hoodie, right? He didn't say take advantage of people in tough places and when they're in tough, lend them money and throw all this percentage on and try to get back. What if we were holy people who lived for others and gave people in tough situations money and didn't expect anything back? What if we spoke encouraging words to people instead of words that brought them down? There's nothing worse than being around a person that already slandered, Right? You go in their presence, and you come out just insecure. Man, I hate being around that dude. Because they just slander. They find the weakest thing about you physically and emotionally, and they make it your nickname, right? (laughs) You know? Here comes Chunky. Here comes Shorty. Here comes Frady Cat. And all of a sudden, you go the whole life, you're Frady Cat's your nickname. Stop slandering people and encourage them. Be the person, be the person that when you come in a room, everyone's happier there because they know that you're going to build them up because that's holy. What if you said, I see the grace of God in your life. I see how you're trying to help others. I see even though you're not there yet and none of us are, I see how far you've came. What if you encourage people about who they are and who God made them and don't make them feel insecure? That's holy and you will enjoy that. Now listen, I was a bully verbally growing up. A bully. I would just make fun of people till I was the leader. I would make them feel so insecure by the time I was there. Everyone was just like, I hope he doesn't say something. Because I was quick-tongued. I was a preacher. So I knew how to bust people up. Then I started realizing I came to church and people were insecure around me because I always made fun of them. Even I thought it was light. I went home like, I'm so funny. And people were just like, I'm so unhappy with myself. I finally realized that I had to take sarcasm, unless I'm making fun of myself, totally out of my language, totally out of my person. And I had to change to a person who encouraged people. And let me tell you, there's so much joy in encouraging people rather than slandering to them. There's joy in living holy in that kind of way. How about being a good example? How many times have we been bad examples in our life? When you are a good example on how to live holy... That brings so much joy to your life. I went to someone's one year of sobriety yesterday, 
It was at 7 in the morning in Lynn. Who has an AA meeting at 7 in the morning in Lynn? I was like, 5.40, I'm setting my clock for, is this real life? I show up, it felt like there were 250 people there. I was like, wow, a lot of people get up at 7 in the morning. There was like 70, but. I got to see this young man, and so much of what he said hit me, but one of the things that said that I wanted to apply to this message was, it feels so good to set example for others that they can live sober too and that there's life in that kind of way. He said, I went from being, and I'm paraphrasing, being someone that's doing all the wrong things and setting a bad example, to now people can look at me and I can tell them, you can do it. And he kept saying this, I can tell other people you can do it. And he was doing it, he's saying, you can do it. You can live sober and you can be a good example and you can go good for others. And that was amazing to me because I want us to hear this. You can live holy. Some of you believe that you can't live holy. You've been saying, oh, you're not that person. You, you, can't. you can live holy and set an example of living holiness, holy so that other people have fruit and life and happiness and joy because of your example. And that will bring so much joy into your life when people can look at you and you say like the Apostle Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That should be what we're saying. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. And people need to see that. Because there's joy in making the right decision. When I first got into business, everyone told me not to claim everything on my taxes. You ever run into those guys? Even the Christian guys were like, dude, don't claim it all. I was like, hold on. Something's not making sense. Jesus said, give taxes and pay taxes even to Caesar. Like he addressed it. It wasn't like this gray area. Why is everyone telling me not to claim stuff? Right? And I got to this point because I wasn't making a lot of money. I wasn't a good businessman because I'm a pastor. No, I was good at relationships. People loved me, trusted me. But I could never charge people enough money to make a living. <laughs> like, I always felt bad. They're going through a lot. Give a break. And when you get break 90% of the time, you make no money. You're driving a Ford Ranger 2000 that has bad wheels. That's what happens in your life. I had to get out of doing business because I'm a pastor. And so I got to this point where I had to send in my tax return. And who cares about me? Would the government even look at my taxes and what I make? It's an embarrassment. Do they even care? And I said, man, I don't even know if I have enough money to pay my taxes. Like, I could claim the right thing and end up being in debt to the government. And I started, all of a sudden those voices sound so much better. Like, man, the government is so corrupt. They're right. They're corrupt. They're not using my money, right? Right, you know everything that underground tells you. And there was such a struggle. When I tell you I was so close to make an unholy decision, I can't tell you unholy, how close I was. Like, I was ready to type that in and send it to my accountant. I'm like, oh, God will understand. And I said, no, I can't do it. And I claimed the right thing. And I sent it to my accountant. Right when I made the decision, I felt such a sense of joy. And you know why I felt such a sense of joy? Because I realized that God had my heart and nothing else did. And when we make holy decisions, it's testifying that money, fear, fame, material things, they don't have your heart. When you do what is holy, you're saying, God, and I cried. I cried because I realized how close, and I, I really pride myself on trying to do what's right when it's there. And I cried because I said, this is your work, God. 
this is your work in my heart because I wouldn't have done this in the past. And you brought my heart to a place where you're the most important thing and living holy is the most important thing. You will never go wrong with doing the right thing. See, many of us heard this text, right? In a few examples, there was a few people in here that said, man, I've been cheating on my taxes. I knew it, right? There's some people in here said, I've been doing wrong things with my money. I've been doing wrong things with, uh, morally. I've been doing, like, we've been convicted, I hopefully, by the word of God. And you say to yourself, I can't be in relationship with God. I'm not holy. I'm not holy. You just listed 10 of those, and I, I got a 20. I've stolen. I've bribed. I've slandered. I haven't loved my neighbor right. And you feel overwhelmed like you can't have a relationship with God, and you're right. You're right. None of us could have a relationship with God if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. Do you guys hear me? We should look at the Ten Commandments, and we should look at those ten things and say, I've miserably failed. If you just went 100% see me after church, I need to preach the gospel to you. The gospel is this, that we all failed the law and that we all failed all those things. But God sent a doorway. He sent a gateway, his son Jesus. That God so loved the world, he sent that door. He sent his son. And that he gave that sacrifice on that brazen altar because we're unholy. And Jesus is the high priest that allows us to approach God. And something amazing switched. No more is there a meeting place that became the temple that you have to go to to meet with God. God comes to dwell with you. God the Holy Spirit, who's the tabernacle now? We are. It said we are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. We are the temple of God. No longer you have to go to the meeting place. God comes to meet you because you are the temple of God. That God the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And this is the amazing thing that happens. He actually changes your affections to want to do what is right and what is holy. That's the only hope we have. The only hope we have is that God the Holy Spirit that's got a hold of our heart to do what is holy and to change our hearts. And I encourage you today that if there is an area where God the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin and you know it because he's convicts, he comforts, he teaching. If there's an area you've heard this message and you say, I need to repent and I need to walk in holiness, I pray that you do that today under the grace of God. Because that's what the gospel is all about. We're not holy. We have to repent. We have to meet with God. He meets with us, and he changes us. Believe this truth, that it's so much better to live holy and to repent of things that he's convicting you of so that you may receive the joy that comes with that. The psalm ends like this. Do you ever realize when you're sinning, your life feels like there's no foundation? You're constantly being moved. You're happy one day, you're miserable the next. They're your friend, they betrayed you. You're miserable when you sin because you're not on sure ground. The psalmist says this at the end. said, he who is in a relationship with the holy God, who does these things, shall never be moved. You will not be moved from your relationship with God. You will not be moved from dwelling with God. You will not be moved from living holy. Let's pray.